Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Uh, for those joining us at home, uh, welcome. We're so glad you're here. As your notes say, my name is Jonathan Cleveland. I'm the senior pastor here at Pulpit Rock. I know what you're thinking. Jonathan, your hair. What's your secret? I'm just kidding. Uh, Jonathan was planning to be with us this morning. He wrote an incredible sermon on the book of Nahum, but he and his family are sick. Uh, they're doing well. They're on the mend, but you can be praying for Jonathan and his family as well as uh, several others who I know are out sick today. Um, but we are jumping into this book of Nahum uh, in the Minor Prophets. I'm really excited about it. If you like the sermon uh, this morning, please email Jonathan and tell him how much you liked his sermon because it is Jonathan's sermon. Even if you don't like it, maybe just pray about it for a minute, okay? Um, you know, we started last fall uh, this study in the Minor Prophets, uh, and there are 12 Minor Prophets. Uh, we covered four of them, and they were all kind of in one period of history. And today we're going to be in this Old Testament book of Nahum, which is going to kind of help us turn the page into kind of a new uh, section of, of history, a new uh, era of prophecy. Uh, and so the book of Nahum, there's a lot in here. Um, it's a good thing I'm preaching because looking at Jonathan's notes, he was going to get real nerdy, like three, four weeks probably in the book of Nahum. And I think we can just hit it all today and just check it off our list. Okay. Does that sound good? That's my last joke about Jonathan's sermon. I promise. Um, there's really one big theme in the book of Nahum, and we see it repeated over and over again. It's really important for us because it's going to be a building block that we can uh, use in the weeks to come. And, and to set up that theme, I just want to maybe share this thought because uh, there's one caution that we have to have before we open Nahum and begin to read. There's one thing we need to understand. Uh, I, I love cross-cultural experiences. Uh, I know Jonathan uh, loves cross-cultural experiences. One of the things that I love about them um, is, is just how it forces you to rethink what you know. Uh, our brains, they're wired to take shortcuts. They do this all the time. We do it constantly, and we make assumptions about what something means. You know, our brains are designed to rely on the accuracy of those assumptions to just help us navigate the world, right? So, like, if I do this and I wave at you, uh, you know exactly what that means. Your brain registers that, and it has meaning. You don't have to think, what does Kyle mean by shaking his hand back and forth? Um, and you can imagine if every situation we approached, uh, we didn't have those. If it was all totally unique, just the amount of processing power we'd need to kind of navigate the world. But what makes a cross-cultural experience uh, so amazing and at times really frustrating uh, is sometimes those mental shortcuts just do not translate. They don't work. And the further you get from culture that you're familiar with, uh, the more you have to check all of your assumptions at the door. Uh, so many of you know, I spent a few years uh, living in Serbia, and I studied Serbian language at the university uh, there in Serbia. And when I first arrived, uh, I did not know any Serbian, uh, like a few words. And I'd spend time hanging out on campus with students at the university. Uh, and they loved practicing English with a native speaker, with an American. And so we'd get into all kinds of conversations. And the strangest thing kept happening with one of my new Serbian friends. Uh, we'd be talking about something, and he would regularly interrupt his own story with the word cow. I'm not kidding. He'd say something like this, Srbolube, which was my Serbian nickname. Best coffee, Novi Sad cow, Znir City Center cow. Next time I take you, cow. And uh, you can imagine, when I first heard this, my mental shortcut kicked in, and I thought, is there a cow that he's distracted by? Like, have any of you seen the, the movie Up with the little dog that goes, squirrel? 
and is constantly looking around. Like, this is what it reminded me of. He kept saying cow, and I, I, like, I would look around. Like, I don't see any cows. I have no idea what is happening right now. So I did not bring it up for the first couple times we talked, and you can imagine how distracting this was. I mean, it was every sentence over and over again, and finally, as we got to know each other a little better, um, I said, hey, um, why do you keep talking about cows? And he had no recognition, was very confused, and then slowly it started to dawn on him, and he was slightly embarrassed, and he said that he didn't realize he was saying it. You know, in Serbian, the word cow is kind of like um, it's, or, or like. It was, it's a disfluency that he was unconsciously saying. So while he was speaking in English, he was unconsciously using this Serbian word over and over again, cow. And you can imagine, like, how distracting, but also how funny that was for both of us. So we had a really good laugh as I explained what, in English, the word cow meant. Um, and it was one, you know, it's a funny way, but it's one of the many ways that I learned that to be healthy in cross-cultural relationships, you have to slow down. You have to relearn as best you can what's happening. Because mental shortcuts and assumptions don't serve you in the same way. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of grace on both sides. Uh, but honestly, I think that's a really good spiritual discipline for us. And, and here's what I want us to think about to just kind of set this up. If that's true of humans, you know, the, we have to be careful about our assumptions and our shortcuts when we interact with someone who lived their whole life in a place like Serbia, then we have to start with this awareness that there's going to be similarities to us, but there's also going to be profound differences that we have to wrap our head around. And if that's true with two humans raised on opposite ends of the globe, how much more true is it between us and God? How easy is it to assume that God is like us? That our assumptions and our shortcuts about what is true for humans we know would also apply to him. I think it is so easy for us to remake God in our image and to assume that he is like us. But I would suggest there's no greater cross-cultural experience than relating with God. He is not like us. We are like him, we're made in his image, but he is not like us. And that means that he's not like any human culture. Like we realize that God isn't American or anything like that. The scriptures teach us that he was a Palestinian Jew, but even as we read the gospels, we see that that culture didn't exactly fit him either. God is wholly other than us. He is his own thing. And we have to slow down and check our assumptions and shortcuts at the door so that we can actually learn to know him as he is. Now, I bring that up as a caution because there's something today that we're going to read in Nahum, uh, th this very specific understanding that we have about something, and that's anger. And we all have a frame of reference for that word, right? When I say anger, you, there's something that pops into your head. We understand how anger works in us. We understand how it works in the cultures that are around us. We understand how it works in our relationships with others. And because we understand the power of that word, anger, we all have this really strong emotional response when we see it embodied in another human. And what we're going to read today is going to associate anger with God. But what we have to understand right off the bat is that God's anger has nothing to do with human anger. This is going to be a cross-cultural learning experience. We have to let go of our understandings about human anger because if we don't, they will lead us to some false conclusions about God. And instead, we need to discipline ourselves to stand back 
and allow this word anger to be defined and integrated with everything we know to be true about the God of the Bible. So we're going to read some stuff out of Nahum. And you will see a picture of a very angry God. And the picture is absolutely true. God is angry. But what I don't want us to do is take the shortcut of assuming that we know what that means. Because in so many ways, he is so different than us. And this is one of the major ones. His anger is different. It is so different from our anger. So let's dive in and see what we can learn about this holy other God that we love. You can open your Bibles to Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. So Nahum is uh, like this epilogue, uh, and, and it ends the Assyrian period of prophecy, which was the last four books we've studied in the Minor Prophets. And this particular vision that Nahum has, it's going to be entirely about Assyria and the destruction that's coming its way. Now, we don't know a lot about Nahum as a minor prophet. We know a little bit about what he reveals about himself in some of the time period because of what he prophesies about. Uh, but we know all about what he's about to prophesy about, Assyria. If you remember, we studied Jonah. It was the first book we studied. God sent Jonah uh, to preach against Nineveh. And Nineveh it was the capital and largest city in the Assyrian Empire. Um, long story short, Jonah eventually goes and preaches to Nineveh, and they repent for a period of time. So God spares Nineveh's destruction. Uh, but then they came back as a world power, the Assyrian Empire did, and they destroyed eventually the northern kingdom of Israel, um, and then they controlled all the way to Egypt. But in doing, as they gained more power and influence, they became even more oppressive and more cruel to everyone that they defeated. So God sends another prophet, Nahum, and Nahum shows up and he says, Assyria, Nineveh, God has noticed. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt, melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. In Hebrew, Nahum uses four different words for anger in this section. This is really serious. And what Nahum is prophesying happened. Uh, Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians and the Medes, and it was said that the destruction was so complete when they were finished that you could walk over the ground where a city used to stand and not even know that a city had been there. 
And Nahum is saying all the evil and the cruelty that the Assyrian Empire had been pouring out on the world, God saw all of it. And he's furiously angry. But what do we make of the anger of God? I think this is where we have to check ourselves. Because it'd be easy to assume that God is like us and he gets mad like us. But that would be a mistake. Because while there are some similarities, there are key differences. Um, this is a cross-cultural experience. You know, for us as humans, uh, when we get angry, uh, anger overcomes us, right? Anger changes us in some way. If we get really angry, sometimes that anger might trump our goodness. And in our anger, we'll do things. Things that are, that are bad that we would never be able to do, that we would not be capable of doing if we weren't angry. And so as humans, violence can be the result of our anger, even if we're not by nature a violent person. But that's the first thing we have to understand about God's anger and how it's different than ours. You see, unlike humans, God's anger doesn't change or override his other qualities. It doesn't change him. When God is angry, he is still good and merciful and loving. He still cares for those who trust him. That's what Nahum's telling us there in verse 7. He still cares. So human anger, it affects, it changes us as humans. God's anger doesn't in any way change him. But there's a second way that his anger is different than ours. God being angry is not the same as God being personally offended. Like, like do you see that? Like, God is unoffendable. In fact, I would say that Scripture proves over and over just how much God is willing to deal with and, and be mistreated, willing to put up with from us. And we look at Jesus, he was despised, rejected, and he never got angry at being mistreated. The, the key you know, passage that we, we know about Jesus getting angry, it was all about when others were being mistreated, right? The whole turning over tables in the temple, it, it wasn't about the awful stuff religious leaders were saying about Jesus. It was about a system of exploitation of the poor and ways that it kept people from God. That's what Jesus was angry about. And so God's anger, it's not because people said bad things about him and he got offended. His anger is about something happening to the object of his love. That's God's anger. I, I read this phrase in Jonathan's notes that I thought was so good. It said that God's love interprets his wrath. God's love interprets his wrath. So his anger is not a moment when God stops being loving because he's so offended. God's anger is a consequence of his love. And I think sometimes we misunderstand righteous anger. We think that righteous anger is, I am right, and I'm angry that you don't see how right I am. Um, but that's not righteous anger, right? That's just human anger. God's righteous anger is not about him being right. He is right, by the way, but that's not what it's about. Righteous anger is about love. God's deep love for us compels him towards what is best for us. And his anger is the result of the presence of what is worst for us. You know, another way maybe to understand anger, something that, that can help us unlock it, is that it, the, the word anger it actually comes from this old Norse word for grief. Um, and I, th I think that helps us understand what it is for God. 
Anger's anguish. Like anguish connected to love. This deep desire that God has for good for us and for love. And in God's case, it isn't love of himself, it's love of us. And the Assyrian Empire, God has seen a people who have perfected cruelty towards other humans and turned it into an art form. And so he is angry. Look at Nahum chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring, the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Now, we literally do not have time to get into all the details of what the Assyrians did. And and there's many historical accounts uh, about this time of history. But just consider that phrase, piles of bodies, piles of dead, bodies without number. And all of it connected to idolatry and this pursuit of power. I think Assyria reveals a simple biblical principle. is that we live out our attitude towards God in our relationships with others. We live out our attitude towards God in our relationships with others. If we have pride with God, if we relate to him with very little humility, then it will translate to people. We will relate to people with resentment and and bitterness and anger, general meanness. But the reverse is also true. The way we see God and ourselves in relationship with him will get acted out and translated into the way we treat others. A.W. Tozer was famous for saying that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what we're saying here is that the way we see God and ourselves in relationship with him will get acted out and translated into the ways we treat others. And the Assyrians were full of this prideful pursuit of power. And it translated in horrific ways to the people around them. God says, I've been watching this for too long. So now, Nahum chapter 3 verse 5, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdom's your shame. It's a vivid metaphor. And what he's saying is you appear powerful, but I am going to reveal the truth about you. And then he points out one more thing. You can skip down to verse 18. It says, King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? So he says, not only is reckoning coming your way, but when it gets there, no one will feel anything except joy 
at your destruction. I mean, so notorious was the cruelty of the Assyrians that not even their allies would feel sad when they fell. Like that, that is a devastating prophecy. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but it makes me deeply uncomfortable. And, and maybe because the prophecy isn't aimed at the people of God, right? It's, it's aimed at this other nation. Like, there's no hope in it. Like, there's no eventual deliverance or mercy for the Assyrians. It is just judgment. It is final and it is complete. And even though God's anger is not like ours, like the finality and completeness of that, it's kind of scary. Like, how do we apply that to our lives? Like, how do we take the judgment of God in this prophecy towards the Assyrians and apply it? I think there's two things that we can see from the intensity of it. Um, And and I I don't think we need to be scared by it. But an appropriate response would be for us to slow down for a minute. First, this is just an observation, but this is telling. I, I think just because God uses you to do big things doesn't mean that you're really on his side. What I mean by that is God's angry at Assyria. And he holds them accountable for how they treated people in his image, right? We see that in this prophecy. But he also used the Assyrian Empire as an instrument of his will with his people. Like the whole story of Jonah is God inviting Assyria to be part of this thing. And God uses Assyria as this instrument. So the obvious lesson is we can accomplish something good for God and still not be aligned with his values, Like, as God's people, we have to avoid falling into the trap that the ends justify the means. Like, that is such a dangerous way of thinking. And Assyria is this extreme example of that. Like, there's all sorts of other examples, though, that are less extreme, where we might be tempted to to mistreat people or cut corners or manipulate others to try to accomplish some sort of success. That you can be successful, you can be right, You can do something good, but if you are also mistreating the object of God's love, he notices that. And we have to ask deeper questions than just, am I trying to accomplish something good? We need to ask, am I aligned with the character of Jesus? Like, that's a better question. Not am I trying to accomplish something good, but am I aligned with the character of Jesus? And I think that's the other application here for us. You know, God's anger, it's always interpreted by his love for the humans created in his image. His anger is always interpreted by his love for humans created in his image. There is nothing that God takes more seriously than love and mercy for humans created in his image. And, And I don't think it's too far to even say that, that sin itself doesn't bother him because it's bad and wrong. It bothers him because it hurts the object of his love, which is humans that he created and died for. And it's so tempting, I think, especially at the beginning of a year, to just to go to God and ask him to make us successful. But what he's trying to do, what he's really after, is to make us loving. And whether it's the empire of Assyria or the nation of Israel, 
or the church itself, the accountability of God is always connected to the love of God. And so when we read in Scripture something like Nahum, about God being angry, about exacting judgment, it doesn't need to scare us, but it needs, us, needs to push us to ask the question, how am I loving? Like, am I mistreating anyone? Am I harboring resentment or bitterness? Like, am I growing softer towards people or am I growing harder? I think if we see our heart trending in the wrong direction, like, we have to humbly receive conviction about that. So, as we start this year, um, with a really scary book that's ultimately about how seriously God takes love. Like, I think it is appropriate to let it sober us, to push us to ask some really good questions. And here's something true in my life. Like, God uses questions to form me, like, so, so much more often than I realize. And I think we can all admit that's been a, that it's been a bit harder to love people well lately right? Like, is that just me? Like, it's been a bit harder. In the beginning, I shared that funny story from Serbia, and, you know, that was lighthearted, and there were plenty of times during the two years that I was there uh, where I really struggled to love well. Like, when people don't act and behave in the ways that you want or expect them to, like, it, it can be deeply painful and frustrating, and it makes it really difficult to love. And I think part of what it is really hard to love people these days is that, um, you know, we're all living with this sense that the last two years, 2020 and 2021, like the world has rapidly and dramatically changed. And we all feel stretched and maybe a little resentful because it's like we've all been picked out of this world that we know and dropped into a new world that doesn't make sense. It's frustrating. But I think what Nahum teaches us, what it invites us to consider is that whatever else we try to do this year, can we, with God's help, seek to recapture our ability to love well? Like whatever other resolution or goal you might make, like I'm, I'm so confident of this, that at the top of God's list is that we would be loving. Like his anger teaches us the importance of loving well. And I know it's hard, like the path of love is difficult and it's complex, but like can you see here every other path is catastrophic. So may we start this year asking hard questions, humbly inviting conviction from the Holy Spirit because he desires us to be loving more than he desires us to be successful. And I thought if you'd let me, uh, we could just close with the prayer of commissioning to that end. Can we do that? Father, we want to be more like you. And we need your help. Would you give us your heart towards those around us? Would you empower us to love well? 
God, we invite your Holy Spirit to convict us if our heart has grown hard, to convict us if we harbor bitterness or resentment. Would you soften our hearts? Would you form us to be more loving? We trust you. We look to you. Thank you, Jesus.